that's almost like the uh, a shortcut is the longest distance between any two given points. Oh God, I don't know. That was like a mental Rubik's cube you just threw at me. <laughs> well, every time somebody gives you a shortcut, you wind up like circling around five times and going through four tunnels, and you're like, "This isn't a shortcut." Four blocks and turn right. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is the host of the popular dialogue podcast, Eric Hunley. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. The podcast, or should I say oddcast, for people who value real, different conversations. Conversations that we hope inspire you to focus on the exponential power of what makes you different. We're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about a great new book called Crash Your Career. It's a handbook designed to help you have a legendary start to your career, written by my buddy Isaac Morehouse, and I was lucky enough to get to write the um, forward to the book. And if you want a preview of it, go to crash.co slash different, crash.co slash different to get your free preview of uh, Crash Your Career. And this is a great uh, tool for anybody in the beginning of their career. All right, on this episode, a great guy, a fun guy, a fellow uh, dialogue podcaster, Eric Hunley, the host of Unstructured. And we talk about a whole wide range of things, uh, including what he's learning from his guests. Uh, I love many of his guests because he has lots of FBI, military, law enforcement types, types that work on movies and TV shows and um, uh, psycho killer profilers. And I know I probably haven't talked about it that much, but I, I love psycho killers. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't love that they exist, but I'm fascinated by, uh, crime and uh, true crime and all that stuff. Anyway, he does a lot of that. He has lots of entrepreneurs, authors, thinkers of all kinds. He's got a very gentle style. So if you like, um, dialogue podcasts, uh, he's sort of a very, uh, you know, I've been described, this podcast has been described as a Metallica concert and he's a little bit more mellow than that. I would say more like a jazz concert, maybe <laughs> anyway, in this conversation it's two buddies hanging out and having a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. We're also joined by my dinosaur Winifred, uh, shortly before we shot this episode, Winnie had had to go to the vet and have her, a little uh, operation on her foot of little boo-boo removed. So she was feeling a, a little, a little strange. So she wanted to hang out. So she's sitting on my lap. You might hear Winifred during the podcast. All right. Uh, go to lockhead.com to check out the episode, uh, uh, the show notes on this episode. And now, Hey ho, let's go. His specialty is sex crimes and children. That's what he was into. He also was a bomb. I don't know if you want to say that's what he was into. <laughs> well, good point. Good point. That is almost a, a terrible check. Um, a terrible joke because he went into the FBI as a bomb instructor. Because a he bomb instructor, in, like I'm going to teach you how to make bombs or destruct bombs or how to disable them. He went into the Navy, went into EOD, was an instructor in the Navy on how to disarm bombs. Then he got recruited into the FBI, became an instructor there on how to disarm bombs. 
because in the early 70s, remember uh, Bill Ayer and all the people who like to plant bombs and post offices and everywhere else? Well, he got involved with that, mm. disarming and training. Then he crossed over into teaching about sex crimes. They were like, hey, we need you to pick up another subject. Here's a list. He's like, sex? Okay. Wow. That's uh, from bombs to sex crimes. Yep. Does that mean he can, uh, I think there's a old uh, Tom Jones song called Sex Bomb, isn't there? Does that mean he, he can do that too, sex bombs? Maybe. I don't know. This is a terrible subject for me to be making jokes about it. I'm a terrible person, Eric. <laughs> well, you're, you're concerned about your child. Yeah, well, you mean you mean uh, Winifred here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's getting a little twitchy now. I wonder. She's breathing a little heavy. But, she's probably uh, waking up and confused. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. I think the anesthesia is wearing off. Did you hear that? She made a little yeah. sound there. She's got a very pretty little voice. It's okay, Winifred. Yeah, you're right. She's waking up. <laughs> well, who knows how this could go? Oh, there you go. an active participant in this conversation. <laughs> that could be fun. So what's this FBI profiler's name? Ken Lanning. Ken Lanning. Yep. So you're on quite a run of sort of these uh, uh, cops and F, you know, CIA. And you had the guy on, you had a guy on recently I loved. Uh, it, was, it might be my favorite episode of yours. The guy who was like the advisor, or I don't know, maybe co-creator to um, one of those Criminal awesome Minds. cop shows. Which one was it? Criminal Minds, Jim Clemente. Criminal Minds. What was his name? Uh, Jim Clemente. Jim Clemente. I and loved Jim that Manning episode. Actually trained him. Ken trained Jim. Yep. Yep. Wow. Ken's been out of the FBI for a while. And part of why I want him on is every FBI agent I've had is different. It's not like I just get the same people on each time. Ken's specialty and a lot of what he's gone on about is cognitive bias and people being convinced. I don't know if you remember, I think it was, they were called the McMartins in Southern California, how there was a daycare. And there were all these claims that, you know, like 100 or 300 children were all molested inside the tunnels that were under the school. And it was part of a satanic worship group or whatever. And essentially, it got thrown out over time. But he's gone into a bit about repressed memories and how things can be planted and things of that sort. And if you know I'm into the cognitive biases and persuasion and influence and different things like that. That fits my um, interest, I guess you'd say. Yeah. So you've been on this awesome run of all these. Oh, there's. <laughs> <laughs> she jumped. She literally jumped out of my lap and onto the table, onto the desk. Now she's probably going to shit in my face. Hold on. <laughs> Let me put her down just in case. That's what she wants to do. and I'll keep an eye on her. Yes, Winifred. I might have to take her down to the garden, but let's just see how she does. <laughs> no this, this experiment might be over. But so I just, I see, I'm fascinated by people who do this. I don't know what's wrong with me, man. And I'm clearly not that unusual, but I, I love murder mysteries. I love true crime. 
I love true crime podcasts. I love Case File. I love this gal, Christy Lee, who does Canadian true crime. It's all-time legendary. It's just one gal, and it's as captivating as anything any of the major networks have ever put on. Every episode is awesome. Uh, I mean, of course, some are better than others, like any, and, but, but incredible. Um, but yeah, I don't. Sometimes I wonder, like, what's wrong with me as I sit down to watch the forty seventh Jeffrey Dahmer documentary I've watched. <laughs> <laughs> there, but for the grace of God, go your family. I guess. I mean, there's a rubbernecking side to all of us. I think we all have a lured fascination with monsters. Uh, vampire stories are really, I think, just a fictionalized account of uh, serial killers and psychopaths of the past. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, I don't, for me, I don't feel like it's, um, you know, that slowing down that you do when you drive by an accident. I don't care about that. I just want to get on my way. So I'm less so that, but I've always been, yeah, as a little boy, I was fascinated by monsters. I, I uh, grew up close to my uncles and one of my uncles in particular, my uncle John was way into monsters, still is. And <laughs> I'd like, all, all the old stuff, you know, like Creature from the Black Lagoon and that kind of, you know, the vintage Frankenstein shit and, you know, all the Bella Lugosi stuff, you know. Universal Studios and that whole lineup. Yeah. And so, you know, from that age, as a like little boy, I liked all that stuff. And then I got spooked like crazy. My crazy Uncle John made me watch this movie. Um Shit, I'm sure it'll come to me as soon as we finish this conversation. Um, but it's a it's a it's a monster movie where there's this doctor and he has a girlfriend and the girlfriend's been in a car accident and her body was ruined and so he just cuts her head off and he somehow is able to keep her alive with just her head and it's <laughs> sitting in this in this dish in his in his in his you know in the in his crazy crazy fucking lab at his house. In addition to that, of course. He's a wannabe Frankenstein, so he's created a, a fucked up human, and, and it's a monster, and it lives in the closet okay. next to the head of the girlfriend. And, uh, and the story is all about how the doctor's going to find some woman who he can drug, cut her head off, put the girlfriend's head back on this body's head, and off they go. And uh, anyway it gets worse and worse and worse as the movie uh, progresses, as you can imagine. Anyway, my uncle lets me watch this at like, I don't know, six, <laughs> eight, maybe not fucking 10. No way. I was 10. No Still way. Today. Freaked out, freaked out. <laughs> and you'll love this. There was a guy in our neighborhood who he found out I was freaked out. And so he, he gave me this, he called it a monster detector. And it was this little, little black box that had, like one, you know, electric oh God, charge funny. reader thingy, metery thingy on it. And then it had these antennae and these <laughs> two red lights. And uh, he told me to plug it in and it would sort of bounce up and down on the meter. And he said, if the red lights ever went off and the meter ever went mental, you would know a monster was around. And so that, that, that got me through the night. <laughs> Of course, then then I'm pretty sure I, I don't have conclusive evidence, but I'm pretty sure my uncle tried to figure out how to hack it so it would go off and freak me out even more. But that never happened. Oh my god! Oh, 
the, the scariest movie I ever saw was Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. The oh, yeah. There's a yeah. podcast called Last Podcast on the Left, isn't there? I, there could be. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. Because I thought I didn't know the movie, and I thought, is this some political podcast? And then I found out it was a horror movie <laughs> podcast. It probably isn't. That movie just disturbed me because it wasn't monsters. It was really people. And it was one of those based on a true story with just a group of psychopathic or sociopathic um, young adults. And I mean, it really, really, really bothered me. It was so well done that I was just creeped out. Yeah. What year did it come out? Do you know, Eric? Do you remember? I want to say 72. Something like that. I missed it. How strange. It's funny what hits your radar and what doesn't. It's an early West Craven film. It might have even been rated X. I don't remember. How old were you when you saw it? Uh, I was a teenager. Yeah. About the same age. Um, I saw it in the 80s. Okay. So you were su- supposedly, you know, there are some people who think supposedly is a word. <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> Supposedly, you were old enough to handle such a movie. I was unsupervised. Yeah. yeah. And I, I probably was. See, but this happened to me when I was supervised. My <laughs> crazy Uncle John, and, and I believe might have been conspiring with my Uncle Terry, but I'm not positive. Uh, my mother would know for sure. Um, they let me watch The Exorcist at a very young age. Like, I want to say 12, maybe 13. That's a creepy-ass movie, too. Well, especially when you grew up Catholic, <laughs> right? And oh and when she's possessed, she says some shit. When you're 12, she says some shit you've never heard anybody say before. <laughs> I mean, yeah. wow. leave an impression. Oh, my God. Scary? Holy shit, scary. Yeah, and for me, that was way more scary than Psycho. Uh, you know what, um, Psycho, I watched Psycho on video the first time I saw it, and then they had a revival or something, but I actually went to the theater and saw the movie, and it was scary as shit in the theater. In the movie. Yeah, I could see that. There's some films that really feel like you need to see them on a really big screen. Uh, yeah, and the trick with that was it was a soundtrack. When the, um, you know, you know, that sound in the shower... They had it at ear-bleeding decibel level. Right. So they really shot you with it. Yeah. So even if I wasn't watching it, you're just, you're so jarred by that sound. It, it you know, pierces right through you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think seeing Jaws in the theater, too, is probably more impactful. You know, was that your podcast I was listening to talking about Jaws and how um, they had to change things in order to make the movie work but that yeah. um, originality is why it was so effective yeah if i'm not mistaken and hey look you know um i do have a whiskey stained brain but i'm pretty sure it was the conversation with max timken from cards against humanity Classic. He, he made a point that i thought was super interesting they they did cards against humanity i might be wrong on the exact number but i'll be right direction i, th- well, I want to say they raised 15 grand on Kickstarter. But if it wasn't that, it, you know, it's not like Mattel didn't give him a hundred million dollars. That's not what happened. Right. Um, so it was, it was very small amount of money and obviously they made it work and they designed a new category and it's the number one game on Amazon. And, and 
I, you know, I think it's a great cultural achievement as well as an entrepreneurial achievement and a creative one and so forth. Anyway, long story longer, um, he was talking about um, the value of constraints. Mm-hmm. And whether it was as an entrepreneur having a small amount of money or for him, he was ta- I also talked about, I thought this was a fascinating um, concept because I'd never heard it before, that um, when a designer develops their quote unquote design style or their design point of view, he said what it really is, is a function of them learning to use their limited skill set. So for example, he never got color. He never got it. So he says, said, fuck it. I'm a designer who doesn't use color. I love that. And now the constraints of black and white, you know, become part of his signature point of view, part of his signature designs, right? People go to him for that type. If you look at Cards Against Humanity, it's obvious what that design point of view is. Um, so he was talking about the value of constraints. And then in Jaws, there's a, some documentaries on Jaws that point out to the fact that um, as they're making the movie, they can't make the fucking shark work. <laughs> and so they keep shooting all the non-shark scenes and, and Spielberg's got to figure out, well, how do I do a mo- horror movie about a shark and never show the shark? And of course, that's what makes it a legendary horror movie. The fact that you never see it. And I, I would argue the music as well, but oh, sure. he, he's forced to do things to make the movie scary because he can't show you the shark. That reminds me, have you heard of um, Robert Rodriguez, the director? Robert Rodriguez? Yeah. He did El Mariachi and Desperado. Um, He he comes to mind when we're talking about this. He may be the most extreme case of this scenario. He went into a medical experiment for a month to collect $6,000 and use that to fund a movie. And he talks all the time about Hollywood trying to solve everything with a money hose. Well, he had no money. So as an example, if you look at El Mariachi, it's a brilliantly done movie, but he used every trick in the book, like he had a wheelchair dolly. So he'd be holding the camera, one of the other actors would be pushing him along the floor while he's holding the camera for the dolly shot. Every extra was shot in the chest because all he had was a weight belt. So all the squibs went against the weight belt. Um, he pretty much recruited everybody from a small town because, and at the end of it, it was like 12 year olds were getting shot as Mexican bad guys. Yeah. Another trick he did was he went into a tourist area and he had to alert people that you were filming. So he put the signs up in Spanish and nobody paid attention. (laughs) And then his last trick, which I thought was hilarious is he'd only um, give a couple pages to the actors whenever they came in and it was just wouldn't know what was happening. Well, they wouldn't know that they had 70 pages of dialogue, which was scare them off. And two, he could send them home before lunch. So he didn't have to feed them. That's so funny. You know, it's interesting. I don't know why I'm reminded of this, but I have an old buddy who's a very, very successful um, entrepreneur and he started off as a coder, you know, so technical guy, engineer. And, uh, in his first success, uh, he was the head of engineering and they sold the company to a very large tech company who I probably shouldn't name. But anyway, he went from running an R&D team of roughly 200 people to roughly 2,000 people. And uh-huh. he, he told me about this and, and he literally went to his boss, the CEO of this now bigger company. And, and he said, look, 
Um, I, I know this sounds nuts, but I don't want 800 of these people because if you can't do it with 200 engineers, you can't do it. Like there's no, and you know, it was an extreme point of view. I know there's people who would argue it, da, 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 but it is, uh, you know, constraints are interesting. Smaller groups are interesting. Right. Have you, well, it's kind of almost like Dunbar's number. Have you, have you heard about that? No. I, oh, is that the number of people you can be in relationship with? Correct. Or that you um, cognitively can handle within your life. And it's around 150. Yeah, I've heard that. But I, I've, you know, it's like I've heard the boil the frog thing a thousand times. I have a feeling that's not fucking true at all. I have a feeling the frog jumps out of the pan as it gets hotter. But I've never tried it. And I guess I'm too lazy to Google it. Do you know, does the boil the frog thing work or is that bullshit? I haven't tried that personally. I, um, I don't know. I think they do it with some seafood. I think they boil lobster that way, but I don't know. Okay, hold on. I'm going to Google that and we're going to talk about this 150 people. See, because I think that 150 people thing, I don't know. I think I know more than 150 people. Yeah, and you're also using tools that are helping you keep track. And my thought is, and looking into David Burkus's work of things, I think we slip people in and out. I think that's true. So the 150 is a loose number, and it can be magnified by the tools we have to collect names. But the relationships aren't all necessarily strong. And if you break down things like the size of an average tribe and the way they break down the tribes and different things like that, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I get the connection with the tribes and that we used to live in groups of, you know, 30 to 150. And, you know, and, and I, it's, it is true. There is some number of people that it's too hard. And there is definitely, um, maybe this is a, I don't know, it's, uh, I think sometimes in metaphors, you know, I've heard it described as rings, right? So there's only so many people you can have on the tightest ring, you know, you're, your spouse and, you know, a couple of really close friends and maybe a sibling or whatever. Like, so there's a, there's a very tight inner ring, people that you talk to pretty much daily, you live with, um, you know, you're in deep, deep relationship with. And then there's another ring and another ring and another ring and another ring. And, you know, down to the, the guy you bump into every once in a while at the conference and you say hi to him every two years. Um, but you sort of always vaguely have to re-remember his name is Fred or whatever, but you always sort of then remember him, you know. So I don't know how many rings we got, but it, I know for me, um, and sometimes I can feel like I have a mind like a sieve, I, I know more than 150 people sure. by name that I would recognize if they walked up to me. Sure, but, that, but you don't necessarily have a relationship with those 150 people. I think that's right. There's some number of people you can only be in any kind of active relationship with. Right. And, and that's my theory on that too is, you know, I, especially I've been in the military, different things. You can get really close to a bunch of people and then you drift apart for a while. It doesn't mean that you don't, that you dislike them or anything. They just sort of move out of the orbit and then they may move back into orbit. Yeah. Ebbs and flows. And I think that the number does probably settle, you know, not, not too far off of that 150. Make an edit point for Jamie. <laughs> yeah. So, so the number is 150. Maybe you're right. Maybe the number is 150. I mean, I'm not the scientist. I just have read it. 
Yeah, I was Googling the frog thing. It sounds like it's not true according to uh, the uh, source of truth on everything, Wikipedia. Because this uh, is often used as a metaphor for the inability or unwillingness for people to react or be aware to sinister threats as they arise. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Well, some 19th century experiments suggested that the underlying premise is true if the heating is sufficiently gradual, blah, 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 blah. Uh, according to expert biologists, the premise is false. A frog that is gradually heated will jump out. <laughs> 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 See, that's what I'm saying. So you gotta, you know, sure. it's like, um, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. You know this expression, uh, well, to make a long story short. Right. I would assert to you, if you think about when someone in your presence has used this expression, you probably notice that the last thing they're doing is telling a short story. As a matter of fact, most people, when they use that expression, they're telling a very fucking long story, right? That's almost like the uh, a shortcut is the longest distance between any two given points. Oh, God. I don't know. That was like a mental Rubik's Cube you just threw at me. <laughs> well, every time somebody gives you a shortcut, you wind up like circling around five times and going through four tunnels. And you're like, this isn't a shortcut. Four blocks and turn right. Yeah. So anyway, that's why I use the expression to make a long story longer. Because hmm. invariably, that's what you're doing when you say to make a long story short. So fuck it, just admit the truth, which is I'm telling you a long story. Sorry, but there's there, I think hopefully there's a point to this fucking thing. <laughs> I and if there that. isn't, maybe we had a good time along the way. You know, one of the things I loved, I've loved about getting to know Bill Walton a little bit is uh, often there's a point, at, but there are, many, uh, there are many waypoints along the way where you're not sure what the point is, but man, is it a great ride. And you know, so there's lots of ways to have a good conversation, I guess. Is <laughs> yeah, but it's a trick um, hosting the podcast. Do you find that too? Where you're like, hmm, I do sort of want to wrap this up. I had that with Jordan Harbinger of all people. How so? Well, I, I talked to him about podcasting, of course, and being a guest because my argument is he's really an expert guest over being an expert host, and that's how he built his empire. But um, we went into his past and he was talking about trapping pedophiles as a kid. How he worked with the FBI and people would call him up and he would set up like a, a date with a man and they would be in the hotel just over the state line. So then the FBI could snag them for, you know, crossing the state lines, et cetera. And I'm sitting here and this is an awesome story. I'm just going to him like, how the hell am I going to circle back around here and get back to the, uh, the thorough line? Huh? You know, that's interesting. I find, Eric, I don't think, at least I don't think I think that way. I, 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 if there's something I really want to circle back to, I make a note of it. But, um, and that, the reason I do that is to get it out of my head so that right. I can just sort of dance in the conversation. Uh, and sometimes that dancing in the conversation means I don't talk about things I planned to talk about or really thought we would talk about. Um, but I, I know this is going to sound corny and like I've lived on the West Coast for too long, but I just, I, all I'm trying to do is be present in the conversation and kind of trust the conversation. I totally believe in that and support that. But one thing I suck at is closing conversations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is a part of me that's going, okay, how do I put a bow on this? How, how do I wrap it up? How, 
How do you I don't do that? find that a lot of conversations have a natural arc to them and therefore there's a natural kick out point? Sometimes there is. And yeah, I'll be like, yeah. you know, especially if they say something really profound, I'm like, you know what? That wow. Was it. Yeah. I, I, nothing to add here. That's just, uh, that's amazing, man. Yeah. People find you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I, you know, I just find I trust the conversation. Um, and, and there's generally, I, there's something fascinating. There's something I'll always be interested in, in um, thinking about and exploring is the natural arc of a great conversation or actually even the natural arc of a shitty conversation um, and uh, where people get stuck or where people go or, and to your point, where, where is the kick out? I think that pre, the shitty conversations are probably when one or both sides have an agenda. Yes. And I think that we totally agree on that. I mean, we're, we're not into talking points. Um, I'm probably ironically a little more interviewee than you are, but still conversational because I, I, I will have, you know, questions and I've done a lot of research and I just yeah. wonder. Yeah. But yeah, that's true. You are a little more formal in that sense, I think. And that, so therefore it feels a little more interviewee, but I think you're, look, the fucking podcast is called unstructured. I mean, come on. <laughs> I have a sense of irony. <laughs> Well, a lot of my research too is just to get them to go down a path to where I can hopefully ask a question that triggers them. And yeah. by triggering, I mean, don't get them upset per se, but just to say, wow, they're passionate about this. I hit it because I, I want to know what they're passionate about. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know why they do certain things and I want them to be excited. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And the thing that blows me away, like, for example, we had Jerry Clune on. We've, had, we've been on a hell of a run of amazing authors. And I read the books, right? So you can see here there's post-it notes and shit. And there's lots of scribbling and shit underlined and, and oh, sure. highlighted and all over the book, right? And I, I do that. I, once I learned that you, it was okay to do that, it really helps me with retention. And I find now as a podcaster, um, I use this for the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I make some notes as I read, um, but really I use the book as my notes. And, you know, I have a little thing here that's a start. There was, I, I, I did this strange, I did this thing with Jerry I've never done before, which is I read him a passage from his book to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, long story, way longer. I also think you got to read the book. I agree. And, and the guest knows the difference between somebody who's read the book and somebody who has it, if they're an author. Oh, definitely. And what's cool too, is when you've actually read the book, you can get an insight into their personality or into their message that's deeper. And sometimes yeah. the insight is not, oh, you talked about something in chapter 10. Sometimes the insight is, is chapter 12 kind of a reverse reflection of chapter 10 where you said this message? Yeah. Yet you kind of changed gears right. on 12. Can you reflect on, and a lot of times they'll be blown away. Like, right. Oh, you caught that? Oh, you read the fucking book. Yeah. Right. And if I can, I do try to get that stuff out early because I don't know about you, but when the guest knows that you care or give a shit about them, then it becomes a conversation. 
Well, and look, I, I only have people on I'm dying to have on if they're an author. It's because I think their book was cool, you know? And so um, my feeling with uh, virtually every author, I, 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 maybe I say it every time. I don't, actually, I've never thought about it until this second. But, you know, I often say things like, thanks for writing this book. Or, you know, this is a fucking great book. Or, you know, like I tell them, like, and I think, um, Bill Walton has taught me like, it's actually cool to be a fan. It's not like you're putting them on a pedestal and you below them or any of that to say, Hey, you know what? This is a fucking great book. You wrote Safi Bacall. This loon shots thing is fantastic. You know, Tanya Katan, you, this tra- creative trespassing thing you wrote, this is a wonderful book. That's really empowering to a lot of people. I can see why this is popular. This is fucking great shit here. Let's talk about this great shit, right? That's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a place in the world, I guess, for journalism where people are going to be critical and, and do all that. And, and, and there's, that's a very important role. Um, that's not what, I'm not a journalist, right? And so mm-hmm. I think bringing enthusiasm for the person generating the idea, at least to me, is part of it. Even with, you know, a guy like Scott Galloway, who um, I have tremendous enthusiasm for his new book, uh, The Algebra of Happiness. Mm-hmm. But there's some positions he, he has on breaking up tech companies and stuff that I'm not so sure I agree with. But that's okay. You don't have to agree with them to be a fan of their work or respect their mind. Well, and yeah, and you want him to provoke your thought so you can, you can explore your own position. You may come out feeling the same way, but you know, uh, you're tempering it. That's right. Yeah. Or testing it. That's right. It's always good to hear something and go, hmm, that's interesting. Now, what do I think? Because the minute you say, what do I think? You're now beginning to think about what you think. And I think <laughs> that thinking, yeah. thinking is the most important thinking you can do. Right. So I, I, that's why I like people who make, to your point, make me think, even if I don't, you know, I listen to political shit. I don't agree with all the time. Well, yeah, because I want to understand it. Yeah, and political shit is too tribal. That's my big problem. Is that there's there's some wisdom all around, and nobody's a hundred percent right. Nobody's a hundred percent wrong, but everybody seems to be a hundred percent certain. Well, here's what I don't understand: Why do you have to be on a side, so to speak? Like, there's certain things that the left side says and does that I really relate to and think are awesome. There's certain things that the right side does, same thing. There's certain things that libertarians believe that I think are really awesome. There's certain things that, you know, hardcore socialists believe that I think are really awesome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know, if you're a fucking person with an IQ larger than your shoe size, isn't that true for you too? How can you believe everything that one party says is the answer to everything? You're aligned on every fucking thing? How can that be? It's tribal. I... The best analogy I can think of is how hypocritical people will be about their favorite football player on a team. You know, like, let's say you have your favorite football team and one of the players, star quarterback or something, he likes to beat his wife. And you're like, well, we need to give him another chance. We need to really look at that. But if he was on another team, you'd be like, he needs to be locked up. It's we so interesting you say life. that. I was just listening to, um, shit, I forget his name now. Um, He's the guy that wrote the book about R. Kelly and he's been tracking R. Kelly for like 30 years. He's a journalist in Chicago Hmm. and uh, he was just on Terry Gross Fresh Air and it's a fascinating discussion. And 
when he first wrote the first story, sort of exposing R. Kelly as a child molester and child rapist, um, mm-hmm. he figured the whole thing was going to explode. This was, I want to say he said it was in 2000, maybe 2001. And that, you know, R. Kelly was going to get caught for this and that was going to be that. Well, fucking yep. A, it's 2019 and the party's really only getting started. And he Michael goes Jackson. on and on and on about how many uh, institutions of one sort or another protected R. Kelly for one reason or another, in spite of the fact that this went on for decades. Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Great example. What a bummer. You know, here's the weird thing. It's like I, I hear people say, well, you know, I can't, uh, I can't listen to any Louis C.K. comedy anymore. And then a Michael Jackson song comes on and they tap their feet. And yeah. <laughs> look, I love Louis C.K. And candidly, I have not watched any of his stuff um, since the news broke. So maybe I'm being hypocritical. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll be able to at some time. But it, it, I just have a feeling it's going to all sound so different now, knowing what you know. So I don't, I don't want to do it. But anyway. Um, that's, a good, that's a good question, though, because I think there's gradations here. And let's take Louis C.K. and Cosby because there's a spectrum. Right. It's nowhere near the same thing. Right. So, or like not even close, I don't think. Exactly. So these are on a spectrum here. And I can definitely start to see people, especially when you listen to some of Cosby's jokes about knocking out and, and oh women. God. Some of the humor he had is like really dangerously close to what he did. It's disturbing. Louis C.K. But funny, it didn't uh, sound that way, right? Context matters. Absolutely. It sound I, that way. And I just don't feel like Louis C.K. should be held in the same disdain as Harvey Weinstein. I don't think there's... No, I don't think so. I don't think what he did is remotely close. Um, I mean, what he did is... is, is Gross. But it's not, it's not... He didn't rape anybody. No. And I think it's actually very childish and gross. It's so weird. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know that that was a thing that guys wanted to do. Why is that a thing? (laughs) Probably the most disturbing mystery of all is like, really? But like I was a 49 year old man before I found out that was a thing that people wanted to do. (laughs) Well, uh, okay. I'm uh, 48. And to be honest, the idea, well, is always the reverse. You'd be afraid of somebody walking in. Not that you'd be doing it in front of somebody. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the other thing I don't understand about any of these dudes is, um, yeah, fuck it, I'll just say it. The only person I want to have sex with is somebody who's way into having sex with me and that we're having fun together. Like, that's, to me, that's the point. Oh, yeah. Right? And so I don't get all this. This stuff is just bizarre. Like, I... I like I as crazy as it might sound, I can relate to wanting to kill somebody. I, I understand where that could come from. Sure. I don't understand where all this perversion comes from. Yeah, I can totally agree because we've all experienced rage. Right. Somebody cuts you off on the highway and you're like, mm, just put your fist right through his face, right? Exactly. You know, most of us wouldn't do it, but we've all felt it. And I mean, we've been cheated. We've been lied to. We've had, you know, anything happen. And yes, we can have just a deep, bitter rage. But on this stuff, I don't, I don't, there's no part of me that relates to it, you know, or, or, or understands the source of it. 
I mean, I understand intellectually, you know, it's about power and it's about this and whatever people say and we've read and why well, I, I don't fucking know, but I don't, it, I can understand certain emotional things that, that could get played out and, and be very bad. This one, I don't understand where it comes from. Well, ironically, this is almost coming full circle. That's why we're so fascinated by the Dahmers and the Bundys. Ooh, yeah. See, now that, see, see how you did that? <laughs> That's called being good at, have you heard this term? Conversating. Ooh, I like yeah. that. I'm pretty sure it's not a real word, but I heard somebody say it recently. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> He's getting a little twitchy. Um, I heard somebody say it a while ago and I put it in the memory banks. It's like, hmm, conversating. I'm not sure that's a word, but it sounds like it should be a word. <laughs> I like it as active. It's like, no, you're actually working at the conversation. You're trying to stay involved. Yeah, the word I like, and I learned, I learned this definition of it as a pretty young man, is dialogue. Did you read uh, Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline? Mm-mm. Not familiar. It sold a lot. Uh, I want to say it was the 80s and 90s. I think it came out in the 80s. I could be wrong, but it's, it's in there for sure. Anyway, uh, I want to say he was an MIT professor. Peter Senge. And it, at the time, sold a shit ton. Like, I think it sold well in excess of a million copies. It's called The Fifth Discipline. And the subtitle is something about, you know, how to become a learning, what he calls a learning organization. And uh, in there, he gets into uh, a pretty long kind of breakdown of uh, the way most people communicate. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he builds an argument that says that most people, um, when they're communicating, what they're doing is I have a position, you have a position, we're both going back and forth. Your job is to win, and winning is defined by me turning around or coming around to your position. And I'm trying to do the same thing with you. And so essentially, we just talk over each other, even if we listen. We're not really listening. Then he distinguishes a true dialogue. And a true dialogue doesn't come from a context of right, wrong, agree, disagree. A true dialogue comes from a position of curiosity. Of Oh, that's interesting. And, and noticing if, if one has a very negative reaction, you say something and I go, well, that's fucking wrong. And, you know, the voice inside my head says that to me, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's one thing to just stick on that position and go, well, Eric, you know, let me tell you why you're a moron. or there's another approach, which is, well, that's interesting, Eric. Tell me more about that. And so in a dialogue, we seek, you know, it's, it's the um, Covey stuff. We seek to uh, um, first understand before we seek to be understood, right? And so Senge sort of espouses the power of an organization, a company, a whatever kind of organization, where a dialogue centered around curiosity and interest is the communication paradigm as opposed to the traditional right, wrong, agree, disagree paradigm. Yeah. A dialectic versus a debate. Yeah. And of course the the conversation can skate around, right? Sometimes we're feeling a lot more open and dialogue and sometimes we're feeling a lot more fuck you. Let me tell you, you know, (laughs) we all move around on the spectrum and you know, if you, um, haven't had anything to eat for 12 hours, maybe you're less receptive or you haven't slept for three days or whatever. 
That's true. What what can help too though is like let's say you really are strong in your stance or what have you. Sometimes just telling a story of like, well, this is my experience and why I kind of came here with this opinion can really go a long way because I mean we all have different backgrounds and different experiences and something may make total sense to me because of my life experiences and that somebody else has different life experiences and we both come to different conclusions, but yet if either of us walked down, down each other's paths, we would probably come to the same conclusion. And even if we didn't, well, so, and I think there's, there's um, real power in here, Eric, of precision communication. Sure. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example of exactly what I'm talking about. Um, a company that I'm fortunate enough to be working with um, is looking to make a big move and do a big new category design. And we've been working together on it for many months. And we essentially locked and loaded and we're getting ready to uh, move into heavy duty lightning strike to launch the new point of view and the new category and all the good stuff. Cool. And as that's happening, um, the head of engineering taps the brakes and says, hey, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't think I like this. I don't think this is right. I don't think my team was involved enough. I don't think I was involved enough. I don't like, you know, meaningfully taps the brakes. Hmm. So we then go through a, you know, two-week cycle of kind of re-swizzling around the idea with him and his team. And one of the things that we did um, finally to get them comfortable was we said, okay, let's, let's be very precise about what we're arguing about. Mm. So we made the following observations about the way the market category is today, what our technology actually does and doesn't do, what our true technology differentiators are in like a no bullshit, we do this, they don't do that way. So we walk them through a set of observations around what the company does, its product and technology in the context of the market category and decisions that we made about that. So there's a baseline. Did we get that right? Did we get the lay of the land right? Yes. Okay, good. Okay, so when you do that, do you, do you take the time to, to agree on the actual terms themselves or what you're saying? Okay. We're moving languaging aside for the sake of this discussion, right? We're just saying, did we get the facts right? So A, do we understand the universe in roughly the same way, the way things are today, vis-a-vis -vis our products and technology and the market category and competition and customers and, and influencers and so forth. Yes. Okay, great. So we generally agree on the landscape today. Then we said, okay, here's what we thought we heard when we talked to people about both our products, technologies, and strategies going forward that we want to um, uh, begin to condition the market category towards with the new category. So here's the forward-leaning stuff we thought we learned. And we walked through all that stuff. Okay, do we agree that we, do you agree that we, we generally understand together what the strategy products, technologies are going forward, um, how we're going to make a difference to customers and how we're going to drive meaningful competitive advantage. And we do it again at a good level of specificity. Mm. Yes. Okay, great. Then, we'll just call him Jimmy for sake of argument. Then Jimmy, um, <laughs> here are the conclusions based on where we think we are, the landscape today and the, the, the strategy going forward. Here are the dots that we connect. That led to this point of view and that led to this category design, the name, the definition, et cetera. 
What we come to find out, Eric, is that he agrees with all of it, except Hmm. the last piece. He doesn't like the category name. Hmm. So what's my point in sharing this with you? Um, If we're willing, it's very easy for, for, certainly for me in a situation like this to get frustrated and angry and, you know, uh, you don't get it. And it's very easy to take a, a, a position like that. And uh, uh, that's my natural thrownness. But I've learned over time the power of precision. What is it we're really debating and arguing? Mm-hmm. And are we off foundationally on something? Are we off on a set of dots that we, that we, because if that's the case, that's a different thing. What you're saying is, um, not I don't like it, but the conclusions and direction are wrong. And so when somebody says about a strategy or a plan or a brand or a, whatever the fuck it is, I don't like this, and it's an important thing, hmm. I have found, uh, you know, ask why seven times is a powerful thing I learned early on. Well, why don't you like it? Well, why is that? And so getting to a level of precision so that we actually know via dialogue what we're disagreeing, what we're debating is a very powerful thing. And I've noticed that very few people get to that level of precision. When you do get to that very specific point, do you find that it not only helps in the communication, but perhaps their objection is solid and the market itself might have had the objection? And you might have missed it. You know, maybe you could tweak it a little bit and everybody's happy and it becomes a stronger product in the end. Or it, it could very well be like if, look, and I'm like anybody else. And so I can get on a high horse as well. So I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment I'm perfect. But that said, I think if, if you try to keep in the front of your mind, I try to keep in the front of my mind, um, the objective is to get to the outcome. And we're very grounded on what the outcome is. And in this case is we want to design and dominate a giant new market category. And we have, have a specific market cap goal associated with what that looks like over time. Um, so, and, and the beauty is, and uh, Professor Maggie Neal from Stanford taught me this on an episode a while back. And she's written uh, several books, if I'm remembering right. She said, because um, she studies diversity and teams and negotiation. And if you think about that in a Venn diagram, how they come together. And one of the things that she said, Eric, is there can be a lot of dissent and disagreement on a team. So in other words, diversity of ideas, mm-hmm. if there's alignment on goals and objectives. And we believe, to quote Elvis Costello, my aim is true. That is to say, if you and I are on a team together and you believe about me and I believe about you that we are 100% aligned on the goal and, and, and we have the best interest of the organization truly at heart. We're not grandstanding. We're not doing any personal bullshit. None of that stuff, right? So if that's the case, people will um, accept a high level of dissension and debate. And that was exactly the experience that I just had. At no point in any of this did I sense from anybody involved that they thought the people working on this decision were being duplicitous or had some political agenda. Everybody was coming from a place of, we care a ton about this company. We want to get this answer right. And, and so that's why we're going to hash and thrash this out. That's awesome. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's what, um, 
you know, my friend Bix Bixon said many profound things, but one of the profound things he said is there's two conversations, right? There's the foreground conversation and the background conversation. And the foreground conversation is the one we're having. And the background conversation is when we get together with our friends at the bar and go, God, that guy, Eric's a fucking moron. And in the meeting, I'm all <laughs> nicey, nicey, right? True. Um, and so, and so Bix's insight, of course, it's obvious once you distinguish the two conversations is what would happen in people's lives? What would happen in people's businesses if the background conversation became the foreground conversation? Mm-hmm. Could cause some issues. One or two. See, I'm going to push you on that. I think it makes life better. Um, I think it does because it adds clarity. You can push me on it all day. Absolutely. Well, see, that I, was a great I, example. I nudged you on something. We are now disagreeing. I, I love that. But we have, look, we respect each other, uh, not to get corny or whatever. I think we have genuine, genuine affection for each other. And so <laughs> we will tolerate a bunch of back and forth. That's exactly my point. Yes. And bringing it to podcasting, I like to be proven wrong all the time, but I'm masochistic. So I'll throw something out there, assuming that you'll tell me, no, that's not right. But that's great because if I just, if everything I say, people agree with, I really, I'm just mouthing off. It doesn't sink in. But every time I hit a roadblock, I'm going, what? What just slammed me in the face? What happened? And then now I'm paying attention. So I'm actually going to probably learn that lesson. So you purposely try to mix it up. Is that, is that what you're saying? So that you can cause the other person to kind of give you a whack. Is that what I just heard? Sure. Not exactly. I don't know. But... I mean, don't, don't let me put words in your mouth. That's what I thought I heard. And that sounds a little, little wackadoo, but what, hey man, <laughs> who am I to call someone else wackadoo? The guy no, sitting like here holding the fucking chicken. No, there you go. I like to throw things out there and speculate because I'm always thinking about things. Oh yeah, that I understand. I'm very happy to be proven wrong. And I, I like to play devil's advocate in conversations when I ne- don't necessarily have the devil's advocate position. Sure, exactly. Yeah, that could be part of it. Some of it is just that I don't completely understand, so I'll come up with a weird analogy or, or whatever because I'm a little slow. You know, I've got to be pr- um, shown how I'm wrong. And in general, I learn more when I'm proven wrong than when people disagree with me. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like I don't want to get overly, uh, you know, thera- therapistic on you <laughs> or therapeutastic on you. <laughs> I, I like therapeutastic. Um, I have a therapist who's quite therapeutastic. Um, but I, I, Prove me wrong sounds overly harsh. You no, know, it's I, not that. It's not that. It's a. I like to be educated. Right, right. But uh, what I'm saying is that I'll walk the ledge a little bit. Like, um, I, I recommended you check some guy out on YouTube who was talking about all the great guitars. Oh, I forgot that. What's that guy? Really name? cool stuff. But one thing he was talking about with like Stevie Ray Vaughan, all these great guitars, is they're always on the edge that they're just throwing down, they're going for emotion, and they're almost making mistakes because they're playing so far on the edge of their cognitive ability, their actual physical ability. They're always pushing it to get that emotion and that feeling. And Mm -hmm. that's what makes it magical. 
you know, I would push on that one again. I, I wonder if that's how it feels. Maybe it does. Um, I try to, th- I'm, as you're talking, I'm trying to put myself back into um, situations in my life where I had huge flow state. Um, no, I guess you're right. I'm sort of arguing myself out of it. There's certainly, um, there's certainly something about, yeah, no, the more I think about it, the more right I think you are and the more wrong I think I was. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think that's why people skydive, right? That's why people fly those squirrel wingsuits. Uh, that's why I did, what was that movie about the guy who fucking summited, uh, El Capitan? Did you see that movie? Holy shit. Cut his arm off or that's another one? No, that's a different movie. I think this one's called Solo or something like that. Ooh, it just yeah. won. Oh, God. Man on a Wire is a creepy one, too. Oh, that's a great one. Oh, no, no, I can't watch this stuff. <laughs> I got to get this I'm right. I'm traumatized right. even thinking about them. I'm like, no way. It, what, what, I can't. Yeah, Free Solo. That's what it's called. And it's uh, the guy's name is Alex Honnold. I don't know. Didn't one yes. of them die? Oh God, I sure hope it wasn't him. But this movie's incredible because of course you know he makes it. And even still, I, I can't remember watching a movie where I literally sat there and my hands and my feet are just sweating the whole time Ugh. doing it. The whole time. It was crazy. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely not my thing. Oh, wait a minute. Look at this. Honnold and Gobright make second completely free ascent of El Capitan via Pineapple Express. So wait a minute. He just fucking did it again, dude. June 11th, 2019. Brad Goldbright and Alex Honnerold are both best known for their cutting-edge free solos. Blah, blah, blah. Yesterday. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, they started at 4 p.m. June 10th. Tried to nab the second free ascent 14 and a half hours later. They topped out, mission accomplished. It was a brutal climb, but I think the nighttime strategy was the beta. Holy fuck, says Goldbright. Wow, no way. That's crazy. I can't believe you went back and did it again. And we'll have to go back and look, but I'm, I'm going to bet that the Pineapple Express route was the more dangerous route. Of course. Because um, they tried to pick the quote-unquote safest route for the first one. Fucking A. See, here's, here's the thing about that. My, my, my feet and hands are sweating talking about it. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it doesn't take that to make me feel alive. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There's, it actually, there's a correlation between, like, um, what is it, jet pilots and alcoholics and things like that. Is there? Yeah, I, I think Dr. Drew has talked about that, that there's a certain a daredevil gene. That yeah you'll find with a lot of alcoholics. Hmm. I didn't know that. This is craziness. Well, I just think you, I'd have to be pretty freaking drunk to even, well, watch the movie, let alone think about doing it. <laughs> oh, God. You know, and my buddy Colin, he said the funniest thing to me years ago. You know, I learned to surf later in life, and, and I would call myself a uh, enthusiastic, at best, intermediate, if not, mediocre intermediate surfer but i'm a strong enthusiastic version of that anyway um uh, one of the things he said to me is he said you know the good thing about being an intermediate surfer 
what it takes for you to be stoked is way less than what it takes for a professional to be stoked. <laughs> so you yeah. actually get to be stoked way more often than the best surfers in the world. <laughs> that makes so much sense. So. All right, Eric, anything else on your mind, brother? No, hey, I really, really appreciate talking to you, man. Yeah, this is fun. You know, I'm a huge fan. So I can, I can fanboy out on, on you. A <laughs> I'm a huge fan of your show. Another brother um, in arms in the, uh, the magical mystery tour of authentic conversations and dialogues. <laughs> absolutely. We've got to keep them going. Yeah. And um, we, will, uh, we will get the broadcasters in the end. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I have a feeling these people paying or charging for their guests is going to go up in frequency, not down. Yeah. yeah. It, podcasting is getting all grown up now. Well, the curious thing is, um, you know, will it turn into payola or not? I think that there's a very good chance these fraudcasters are going to attract the attention of, uh, if not the FCC, then maybe the FTC. They may, but there's so many ways that it could be done that I'm sure there's some slippery ones who find a way through. Yeah, well, there's always the nefarious bastards. <laughs> there will always be nefarious bastards. <laughs> All right, Eric, anything else? That's it, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother. This has been a fun conversation. I appreciate you as always. You too. There he is, my buddy, Eric Hunley. Uh, make no mistake, check out Unstructured wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now, um, publicly traded company DocuSign wanted to modernize its IT platform and streamline its business. So uh, DocuSign, like over uh, 18,000 legendary businesses, turned to my friends at NetSuite. And uh, in particular, revenue recognition had become a bottleneck at DocuSign. And as a public company, you got to get that right. They had a spreadsheet-reliant process that had grown unmanageable as DocuSign approached 100,000 global customers. So uh, they wanted one IT platform that could integrate numerous um, uh, capabilities across all of their functions, one platform to rule them all, and that was NetSuite. Today they use NetSuite for budgeting, forecasting, billing, uh, CRM, yes, CRM, time and expense management, and much more. NetSuite is the platform for growing your business and knowing what's up in your business. That's what has made NetSuite the number one platform in cloud ERP and the business management platform for growth. As a listener to this podcast, they're offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So go to netsuite.com to get yourself set up. netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank our friend and guest today, Eric Hunley, Unstructured. Check him out. He's the man. OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check it out. Number OneLifeFullyLived.org slash Lockhead. And there you'll be able to get more information on our upcoming conference in October 2019. GrowWire.com. This is the nonprofit helping you. Uh, no, that's One Life Fully Lived. <laughs> GrowWire.com, stories of innovation for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people. Check them out. The official sock provider uh, to this podcast is John's Crazy Socks. Why wear boring socks when you can have crazy socks? Check out johnscrazysocks.com. And if you want to hear their story, check out episode 1. 
uh, 55 of Legends and Losers. Now, if you're in the UK and you want to do some legendary marketing or you're a U.S.-based company and you're looking to expand into Europe and you want to kick some butt over there, check out my friends at PositiveMarketing.com. That's PositiveMarketing.com. Marketing, PR, and legendary stuff in the UK. Check them out. Play bigger. How pirates, dreamers, and innovators create and dominate markets. The instant classic from HarperCollins. It's my first book, and I would love it if you checked it out. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to give you back some time with the power of a virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. And a nonprofit I also want to tell you about, the incredible folks at donorschoose.org. This is the nonprofit connecting public schools to the public. They make it easy for anyone who wants to help a classroom in need so that every student in every community in the U.S. experiences a great education. Check them out. They're amazing folks. We have an episode coming up soon with them in it, donorschoose.org. All right, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We're produced by the incredible Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Edited by the amazing Mike D. Show notes by Diane uh, Geraccio. <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny. Sorry, Diane. You're a very funny gal. She, Diane uh, uh, texts and emails me funny stuff when she's doing the show notes. She's got a great sense of humor. Newsletter is by Karen Anahog. Our analytics are by Rowan Nostros. Website development is by Sherwin Amel. Don't forget to support independent podcasters by free-range, pasture-raised eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you hanging out. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.